Good afternoon. Welcome to your American Heritage, baby. My name is Ed Bondarenka, and I am not your normal fluffy insurrectionist. And producing the show is the Swiss Army Knife of Radio, Derek Stone. Derek hosts Stone Cold Sports Truth Sundays at noon 30, right after my good friend Sean Todd hosts The Intersection at noon. The intersection, of course, is not your normal fluffy. Not yeah. your normal fluffy Christian show. And so you should listen to both those shows on Sundays and not to mention the Saturday lineup of Abolitionist Roundtable at 9 a.m., uh, Trigger Talk at 11, Moment of Clarity at 1, where I co-host with uh, Pastor Rick. And then and then if you missed any of them, go to the podcast page at whamradio.com to catch up or share with friends. Because your American heritage is on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts, and you can subscribe. Boost the signal. Be a Paul Revere and get the word out. Because it's day 895 of the coup, the theft of the American government by enemies both foreign and domestic. It's also 25,446 days since I began my journey as a male, okay? I don't think I'm going to get my face on a beer can for that one, but, uh, you know, it's a celebration. Because there are forces trying to twist our nation and culture out of recognition from their historical roots of greatness. Perversion is real. It's not a choice. It's a destructive force, and it's having its way with us. You know, first it was COVID that demanded our subservience. Now it's gender studies graduates. We have a president who showered with his daughter, who has filled his administration with clueless perverts who are confused about their own place in the world, thinking they can lead us to our place in the world. And they're being presented as role models, while most of us ask, how can this be? Well, this can be because we have lost our way as a people. We have forsaken God and biblical morality. We have neglected church attendance for one reason or another. And we have people saying that a man pretending to be a woman or appearing as such on a beer can does not affect them. What do they care? Well, that's very similar to saying a bunch of trannies in a kindergarten class doing a striptease doesn't affect me. It affects the culture and the culture affects all of us and how we look to the world. But there are forces trying to bring awareness back to our people. It's like one of those books or movies where the protagonist, usually a kid, finds out that the adults have been lying to him. He or she, usually a she these days, finds a hidden book, a forgotten library that describes life before some event that changed it all, usually instilling fear in the populace and blind subservience to the leadership. But then they break through and tell everybody the secret, the real beginnings. Well, we need to be aware of our history, the founding, our heritage. We're going to discuss that today again with our guest, Michael Wilkerson. Now, remember, Isaiah 30, 18 says, Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. And again, Psalm 144 says, Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. So please clasp your hands and your fingers. Let's play. Let's pray. Let's go to war. Father, Please protect our nation and our state from these evil tyrants. Please deliver us from these ungodly oppressors. We live in a land that has the appearance of becoming wicked. Please help us cleanse this land and remove the wickedness that has come to power. And please lead and guide the American people in the days to come in resistance to these wicked rulers. Please restore goodness and morality to the governance of our nation and our state. Amen. My guest today is Michael Wilkerson. He's the author of Stormwall and now why America Matters, the case for a new exceptionalism. Hi, Michael. Welcome to your American Heritage. Hi, Ed. Great to be with you today. 
Thanks. Appreciate it. Really nice. I'm glad you could come and join us on such short notice. I started reading your book and I said, oh man, got to get this guy on. It's timely. And um, why don't you tell us something about yourself, your background, how you came to write this book? Yeah, and thank you for that. So this was a process that began in 2000 in the midst of lockdowns. So by way of background before that, uh, I've been working for really uh, nearly three decades in business finance. I worked on Wall Street as a merger and acquisition advisor. And then for the next decade, really right up until lockdowns, ran a company that was investing in businesses in Africa. So around food security, energy security, uh, we did schools, banks, other things where we were trying to find ways to combine doing well and doing good in a for-profit platform and help to transform uh, the most important co uh, continent for the next century. And during that time, uh, I ran into over and over again, uh, confrontation or competition is a better word uh, with the Chinese government around various investments we were making. That's a story for a different time. But I came back in 2000, as we all did, uh, entered into lockdowns, travel restrictions, was no longer able to be on my uh, transcontinental commute back and forth to Africa. And I was forced in a way to focus on what was going on in my own country, in my home, where I had been you know, busy and elsewhere for several years. And what I saw in the in 2000, 2020, I should say, I think it's the 2000 earlier, in, in, in 2020, shocked me uh, because it was almost that I'd come back to an unrecognizable country, an unrecognizable nation. And I wrote my first book called Stormwall, Observations on America in Peril, in the midst of that environment. And it was my first attempt at writing a book. I had started writing earlier that year op-eds and other things and realized I had so much I wanted to say about what I was seeing around me that I needed to put it in a book form. And what was I talking about? So I was focused, of course, on the pandemic. What is this thing? Where did it come from? What are we doing in response and why? That's sort of one big category. I talked about what I had been observing for several years, the rising conflict uh, with China, with a, with a rising and very imperialistic China. And I'd seen it from a unique perspective of my experience in Africa on the front lines in many ways of what uh, they were doing globally. Uh, social unrest in our own country. And I also started to talk in 2020 about what I consider the looming risk of inflation. Uh, now at that time, that was considered pretty fringe to say that. We've been in uh, decades <laughs> of deflationary experience. Everybody thought I was a little crazy on that point, but nonetheless just sort of smiled and, and went on. Um, that experience, writing Stormwall, was very important for me because I learned how to write a book and learned how to get it out, learned how to publish it. In many ways, it was a prelude to what I consider the most important uh, work that I have done around this issue, this book, Why America Matters, uh, which, by the way, your listeners can find at whyamericamatters.com and, uh, and, and go there uh, at any point. But Why America Matters really was carrying on from where I left off at Stormwall, which in the first instance, that book was about problem identification, like what is happening, maybe some why. But what I really have tried to do in Why America Matters is give Americans um, hope for the future uh, to maybe awaken those who are asleep, to encourage those who are discouraged, but also recognizing that there is an entirely new generation who has never heard the true story of America. Uh, for whatever reason in this last generation, they didn't get the history, they didn't get the civics in public school or otherwise. You know, you and I grew up at least at a point in time where we were taught these things in schools. That is no longer the case and it's frightening because if you look at the disintegration by age cohort, um, we are losing our identity because people simply don't know. They've never been taught, they've never been told. 
you save for whatever reason. And I think there are certain reasons that we can discuss. And uh, one of the methods was Howard Zinn's uh, history books and, and others. Uh, I just was looking for something to support uh, something I was writing today. And uh, I found the exact opposite it was lies my teacher told me. And I thought, oh, a conservative wrote this book. No, it had a, a forward by Howard Zinn. In other words, your teachers lied to you about America. We've got the 1619 Project, which is a total fabrication, total lie. The 1620 Project uh, written by James Woods uh, clears that up exactly where America is based on. It's based on uh, Christian values and not on slavery. So please continue. I'm sorry, I just had to interject that. What I did in Why America Matters was look at what I considered four categories of crises that we're facing right now. The first was the crisis of circumstances, which is kind of all the things that I just described in, in, in writing the book Stormwall, what was happening with the pandemic, uh, economic challenges, conflict with China, et cetera, et cetera. The second challenge was the crisis of identity. This idea that we no longer know who we are as Americans, we started to talk about that a second ago. Uh, increasingly, we are seeing an unwinding of basic ideas like, is democracy a good thing? Is capitalism the right way to organize our economy? Uh, does religion and God matter? Do families matter? Do fathers matter? A loosening of all these traditional ideas that were so important to the founding of the nation, and two. Number three, the crisis of institutions. And the short version of that is essentially pointing out that our federal government institutions are absolutely failing us across the board. They're betraying the ideals of the American people. We've gotten to a place where they don't trust us and therefore we do not trust them. And this is a frightening place to be. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to see how when half of the nation is labeled a domestic terrorist, how this can end well. Um, and so nonetheless, crisis of institutions was the third point. We're seeing that of course in spades. I don't want to get too deep into this, but the other way to think about the crisis institutions is the organized and official lying that we have seen across so many important issues in the last several years, all the way from Russia Gate back in 2016, through the Wuhan flu, the laptop, even to date to the war in, U in Ukraine, many, many other examples, the so-called insurrection of January 6th, et cetera. Massive lies coordinated by our largest and most powerful federal government institutions. Number four, the crisis of engagement. When you start with the first three, all these crazy things going on circumstantially that we've never seen before. Two, a lack of knowledge of who we are as a people. Three, failing institutions. Fourth is the crisis of engagement that we no longer know how to engage with ourselves or with the rest of the world. You see that in the confusion around our foreign policy, confusion around our domestic policy, adopting progressive and woke ideas that no sane person on the left or right no person who accepts the science would ever acknowledge. We've entered into a strange dystopian fantasy land on these issues. So those four things, and I set the stage for, okay, we've got, we've got a moment in time that we've never seen before. Of course, America has seen crises. We went through the Revolutionary War period. We went through the divisive issues over slavery through and the rise of the abolitionist parties right up to, civil, to the Civil War. We went through a Great Depression, the World Wars the 1960s. So I'm not saying this is the first time America has been to a crisis of this magnitude. It's just that it's different. The no crisis is exactly the same. History doesn't repeat, it rhymes. So we have a new verse uh, that has some characteristics similar to those in intensity. So it is very similar. We're not in civil war yet, thanks be to God. But we are, uh, 
we're in danger of entering into that into that level. So maybe I'll pause there and just see if you have any questions. But that, in a way, was the setup of helping to describe um, we we have a problem, Houston, and uh, and what can we do about it? Yeah, the the four uh, distinct crises you mentioned. I mean, that that's a book in itself, and you do elaborate on it quite some, and and it's very interesting. And and I read in your book you pointed out that. Uh, you know, we faced a threat from an Asian flu once before under Eisenhower, and the decision was made to carry on. We're not going to let it disrupt us. And yet this COVID, uh, I just want to say fraud, this whole, I mean, people died, but they died from our reaction to it more than anything else is, is why people died. This this flu, which it did kill people you know, of its own volition, but nowhere to the degree of the Spanish flu. And it wasn't a Spanish flu, and yet that's how it was portrayed, something we're all going to die. My own personal doctor is describing this horribly dystopian future if I don't get the shot. You know, I'll be taken outside of town and, and nobody will find my body because that's how people handled smallpox in the past. And this is the kind of fear from figures of authority that was being generated. Now, some people have written the books about the fear and what's happened to us. And it, it's, it's like, wow. Where did we as Americans come off, you know, buying into all this? And then your last crisis was a crisis of engagement. And I also read that as we're not as engaged as we should be as citizens. We don't go to we don't join the school boards. We don't oh, we don't elect the right people. We don't get politically involved because that's politics and they're all crooks, you know. And and another lacking of engagement is our pastors. Our pastors don't stand up and lead their congregations and into the right side of a political argument. You know, not a Dem or Republican thing, but the right side. So, yeah, you've, you've really hit on a, a big point around the crisis of engagement, which I failed to mention up front, which is I, I spoke about the failure of government to engage in a reasonable, rational way, uh, in a way that works for our strategic interests. But you're right. We as Americans have forgotten as a, generationally we've forgotten how to engage with our own government. So one of the things that made America so unique, so distinct from almost anywhere in the world was, first and foremost, was its faith and its religion. But one of the other attributes was this civic involvement, the fact that Americans were generation after generation so involved in politics, in elections. And by the way, they were as cantankerous and contestive and unpleasant as they are today. Uh, except more, more so in real in, in in the fact that people would get out in the squares and debate each other. It was all being played out in the newspapers, not on social media. Something happened in our generation, which of course is parallel to the rise in cynicism, the rise in belief that nothing oh, doesn't really matter. We can't really influence anything. Let the experts run the government. Let the administrative uh, elites run the government. At the same time that we were going further and further inward in social media on Facebook whatever it was and so now we have a generation who except for a few activists on the very on the left let's say most americans have haven't grown up in an environment where they understand what activism is or, or what engagement is is, is a better word mm -hmm. that we actually can make a difference and one of the main points i'm making the book is that any kind of change any kind of renewal here is not going to be top top down it has to be bottoms up it has to be this massive awakening of millions and tens of millions of americans who finally realize that the only way to, to bring about change is to get off their couches get out from behind their screens go to their school boards go to their town councils 
uh, kick up some dust, make a little bit of a mess and let people know that nonviolently, of course, let people know that this shall not stand, whether it be the uh, transgen transgender ideologies in their school children's classrooms or whatever of numerous other things. And on your point, even resisting the vaccine mandate mania and a lot of very good hardworking Americans lost their jobs over this issue. And you know what? They were, of course, in the right. And the more information we're getting, it adds to the list of just big lies that in a very coordinated way, our media, our governments, and as you pointed out, even our healthcare professionals somehow decided to go along with without evidence. And this is frightening. Well, the, the Declaration of Independence was a list of grievances, and we have a list of grievances against our government right now. And you mentioned civil war and engagement with the government, and those are <laughs> civil wars a way of engagement with the government. I do not propose civil war. I don't want anybody to think that I'm really a, an insurrectionist. I am not an insurrectionist, and that's not just because I'm trying to keep the stormtroopers from my door while I broadcast. But there are a number of people who are. I read their comments. Let's get it on. Let's get it done now. I'm not getting any younger. And and they just basically don't want to be, they don't want to miss out on the opportunity to fight for their country. And they believe it's going to come to that. It won't be pretty. Uh, uh, I had on a, a guest last week or the week, oh, two weeks ago, we were talking about the coming war with China. And uh, we can't fight that war with China if we're in a civil war. And they'll just come in and take advantage of us. They'll steal our lunch. We, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And yet we have to become engaged, push back, find a united front. You mentioned an awakening as opposed to an awakening. We've seen a great awakening. It's no good. And I didn't coin that term. I stole it without attribution because I can't remember who. But we need, and, and we need a spiritual awakening in this country. This is not a, uh, a proselytizing show. This is not about that, but this is, this is good versus evil. This appears to be um, um, forces beyond us. If, if you believe in, in good versus evil, there are forces beyond good and forces. It's not a, an arbitrary assignment of, of values. And you've got to find the right side and you got to be on the winning side. If you want to be evil, fine, be evil. If you want to be good, find the God of the Bible, who is the Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts, and and serve him. And you'll find a spiritual refreshing. Well, one, anyone one of the far? things that really struck me again in writing this book, and I went back in history to the pre-revolutionary era, meaning the era of the Puritans, those who had come to this country, 1600s, early 1700s, and the, especially in New England, the deep level of religious faith that informed every decision that they made. And then moving on to the revolutionary era, what we call the founding fathers, while it is true that a number of them didn't have traditional uh, Orthodox Christian beliefs the way you or I might describe them, uh, whether they were more deist or universalist or otherwise, what they all agreed on, even kind of skeptical people about faith, was that without God, there could be no religion. Without religion, there could be no morality. Without morality, there could be no trust. Without trust, you couldn't have a, a democratic republic that the, like the way what, what the United States was trying to become, what they were trying to create. So there was almost, there was this nearly universal recognition that religion, faith, church, family, community had to play a, a special role in the United States. In a despotism, in a kingdom, you don't need it because you don't need trust. You just, everybody just obeys here. 
we needed to be able to trust the population, the civility to come to good decisions. And for that, you need the trust. For that, you needed a morality. For morality, you need a religion. I'm working backwards now. And for religion, you need a God. You know, I'm going to name drop here, but my friend William Federer, he comes on the show frequently, and he pointed out once how a lot of our founders and uh, uh, the institute, the learning institutionists, uh, people who founded Princeton and, and Harvard, they all spoke Hebrew. And the reason they all spoke Hebrew, uh, who's the governor of of the of Mass, uh, Massachusetts Bay Colony? Um, doggone it! Oh, John was Winthrop the, was the first. If that's who you're talking. Thank about. you. He he wrote his diary in Hebrew. <laughs> And he did that to practice it because they looked back to a land without a king, which was under the in the book of Judges, how Israel did it. And how how did they get by in a government without a king? Because God was their king and they all knew God was watching over their shoulder. And it instilled in them this this virtue that there's there's punishment for the wicked and there's reward for the for the righteous. Let me connect a couple dots on a couple things you said. It's really important we stick with us for just a second, which is you yep. also talked about, you know, now the potential for division in this country, how China would then effectively lick their chops like a, like a wolf looking at lambs who are now separated from each other without protection. If you go back all the way again to the founding fathers, Jefferson, Madison, John Quincy Adams, who actually was the underlying writer of what we call the Monroe Doctrine, they appreciated instinctively because they're watching what was happening with the European empires, the British empire, the French empire, that if the United States could not remain together, okay, we would be prey for our adversaries abroad. At that time, it was the French. At that time, it was the British. Today, perhaps it's, it's China. So for better or worse, and probably for worse, but nonetheless, they made a compromise around slavery in order to keep the United States together, to create the United States, to keep the South in the Union, okay? Well, so that's one point. Moving on to your point about religion and God, so what happened after that? Well, people like John Quincy Adams, after he left the presidency, spent the next 30 years in Congress advocating for abolition, saying slavery is an evil, slave trade is an evil, we have to end it. That's where we get the, the gag rule, because the rest of Congress tried to stop him from talking about this time and time again. Over the next, uh, well, really it was seven years, it was the Christians, it was the churches, and in particular, the women in these churches who created these abolitionist societies and would hector their husbands and their brothers and their fathers around this issue to say, this is an evil, this is a moral issue, this isn't about states' rights, it's not about protecting our commerce, it is wickedly immoral to enslave people. Slavery had been the common for thousands of years, that was the normal. It was abolition that was the novelty, that was the new thing. And it was this crazy faith that early Americans had trying to bring it into the public square that was the, the new and distinct thing in history. Boy, we could talk to that a little bit after the break. Folks, uh, we're running into the commercial break between segments. And my guest, of course, is Michael Wilkerson, the author of Why America Matters, The Case for a New Exceptionist. Please come back and join us after the break. We're going to talk more. Maybe we'll open the phone lines. Maybe we won't. We'll see how it goes. And for those listening, check it out at whyamericamatters.com. We were made to be courageous, we were made to lead the way, 
Thanks for returning to your American Heritage. I'm your host, Ed Bonamica, and joining me is our guest, uh, Michael Wilkerson, the author of uh, Why America Matters, The Case for New Exceptionalism. And that's what we're talking about. And Michael, where would somebody get this book? And you can find it at whyamericamatters.com or any of the online sources. But if you want to so go directly to the author's site, whyamericamatters.com should be easy to remember. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we were talking during the break, and I fancy myself not a student of history, but a a reader of history, somebody who enjoys history, knowing the story of America and how we got here. And, you know, it's not taught well. It's just not taught well in schools, never has been taught well. And I know people say, oh, I hate history. And I start talking to them and explaining to them stuff. And they go like, I didn't know that. You make it sound interesting. And that's that's what why I point people to Bill Federer. He makes history interesting and i'm reading your book and it is so in depth and yet it's not intimidating it explains stuff so clearly if somebody doesn't know what shay's rebellion is about and they've only heard about it you know uh, uh, bill explained to me the whiskey rebellion once but we didn't get into shay's rebellion but you did you you explained that oh i got that that's simple and it's 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 not overwhelming. This I didn't realize this was going to be a history book. I thought it was going to be more like a philosophical tome, which it is also. So. Well, it's funny you say Shay's Rebellion because the analog to today is Shay's Rebellion was about taxation, devaluation of the currency, and inflation. Does any of that sound familiar? Exactly, exactly. You know, I, I don't know, last year, the year before, when we first saw the Bidens come in, the Biden crime syndicate take hold, uh, I was actually saying that it's like watching a James Bond movie where you've got this organization like Spectre and they're manipulating the world economy so that they can sell America short. So they can take all the, everything they can borrow and borrow against their, their fortune without spending their own money, borrow in American dollars and then buy up American farmland, buy up American goods, American minerals, whatever they can buy up with borrowed money and then when they inflate, when the dollar fails, the value of the dollar goes down, which means basically if you go to pay back $100 that you borrowed and $100, you're paying it back to the equivalent of 50 cents on the dollar. It's almost like a big scam of organized crime that's being inflicted on this nation. Now nah, that couldn't be. So. Uh, it's very interesting to see. And you think about the, the China, for example, the Chinese Communist Party in particular have been thinking about this issue for for years and they started to talk about it publicly in the last decade where you know, they, they made it very clear that their intention was to in their views re-emerge as a dominant global power they believe that that is their rightful place and they recognize that in order to achieve that goal they would have to accomplish two things one to supplant uh, the u.s economy but also to supplant uh, the u.s-led um, democracy and ideas of freedom religion all the things that the cherished ideals that were part of our founding, these are antithetical to the totalitarian ideas, the authoritarian ideas of the Chinese Communist Party or communism anywhere, really. And so quietly at first and now more vocally, they made their intentions very, very clear. 
and we were asleep to it. We were blind to it for years and years and years. Fortunately, I do think uh, Americans and our government is beginning to wake up to it. Whether we're doing enough or not is a different question. Yeah. Hey, uh, the phone line is 734-822-1600. Oh, almost gave out my cell phone number, 734-822-1600. And uh, if you have a question for Michael, uh, please feel free to call. Uh, keep it short and brief. And um, there are so many things, so many notes I've taken from your book here I've got in front of me right now. Now, one thing that really surprised me that, that you brought out early in the book was the whole concept of American exceptionalism, how it came about, who believed in it, who did not believe in it. And I always thought Obama was the bad guy when it came to not being a fan of the term American exceptionalism. And you, and as a guy who supports Trump, I was really surprised to read what you had to say there. Did you want to talk about that for a second? The interesting thing is, you know, many uh, U.S. presidents have evoked, invoked, evoked, excuse me, evoked the idea of American greatness, the idea that America was a special place. And it really is true that it was a, a, a held belief from early on. The Puritans believed that they were uh, on a divine mission, that they were doing something special, that they were a new Israel. Now, they were the first to believe that. The British believed that. The Dutch believed that. Uh, many Christian nations believed that they were trying to create something new. When, when the early when the colonies were created, though, it was definitely a central part. The founders knew that they were doing an experiment that didn't exist anywhere else in the world. Abraham Lincoln, of course, famously has talked about, you know, the the the, the union and all of the the ideas that the the union represented. As early as John Kennedy, President Kennedy, they began to talk to use this imagery of the city on a hill. This idea that we have a role to play. America has a the United States has a role to play, not just here domestically, but around the world as a city on the hill. This biblical imagery of shining a light in dark places, and of course, for President Kennedy, this was in the Cold War. So the, the the intention there was very very clear. Obama was the first president to kind of repudiate this idea. Reagan, Bush, Bush. Uh, others, Clinton, had all sort of used the same language, had all supported this idea. Obama said, you know what, we're not really exceptional. Well, if we're exceptional, we're exceptional in the same way that anybody else thinks they're exceptional, exceptional, uh, the Greeks, the Brits, anybody else, and kind of discounted it as he went on his apology tour around the world in his first term. President Trump, or candidate Trump, I should say, came out swinging pretty hard and says, we're not exceptional anymore. If we were at one time, we're not right now. This is an H-hole country, you know, where all these things are happening. Uh, and, you know, had this had this uh, long list. And, of course, he was right on many of the issues that he was talking about. What I found fascinating looking at it was as as candidate Trump and even in his first year of presidency, he didn't use that language of American exceptionalism and was negative in the way that I just described. Something changed in his term. I think as he began to recognize the stakes, what we were up against, the importance of defending uh, he always believed in America, of course, but defending these ideals, defending the idea of American exceptionalism. Uh, in his last couple of years, he began to use language like the timeless nature of American exceptionalism when he talked about the need to defend our federal monuments, our statues, our uh, heroes and heroines of the past, to not deface them, tear them down, to not rewrite history. And I suppose went through a bit of a transformation around this idea and the importance of uh, maintaining and, and really educating Americans about our history. You know, just last comment, just going all the way back, the reason that the public school system was created in the United States in the mid-19th century, uh, men like Daniel Webster and others would talked about the need to create an environment that, that they could ensure that they could pass on the civic virtues, the values of the nation to the next generation. What were those values? 
the Christian faith, the idea of democracy, the ideas of the Constitution, that if they didn't have a school system in which to do that, an educational system, the knowledge would be lost. And so that was the, that was the basis of it. Now, of course, 100 years later, that very same system had become this uh, behemoth uh, institution that from the 1950s on began to unwind all of those learnings, God, country, et cetera, and led us to the place we are today. Yeah, if you ever come to Michigan, I will take you to the Henry Ford Museum and Greenfield Village. And there's, there's the Greenfield Village is an amazing place. And there's an early American schoolhouse there. I think it was Thomas Edison's where he went to school. It was actually brought to Greenfield Village and reconstructed. And you see what they read there, what they studied. What was studied to, to learn to read in this country besides scripture was the McGuffey Reader, the McGuffey Primer, which is all based on scriptural references. It was, I mean, there was no problem with teaching religion in this country, the Christian religion, because of the values that it brought. Now you couldn't even put the Ten Commandments on a classroom wall even if you left the word God off, it'd be too close. You don't, don't you don't, you shouldn't steal. Nope, nope, you can't do that, that's too religious. Um, we have a caller, I asked for calls. We have a good caller from uh, Gary from Tucson, Arizona. And uh, he has a comment. And then I wanna get into uh, what you had to say about uh, 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 Charles Murray and the four fundamental, four foundational virtues. But first let's talk to Gary. Gary, welcome to the show. Hey gentlemen, uh, there's so much to say here. Uh, one of the main reasons that the institution of the education has uh, faltered is the Supreme Court. Uh, our own institutions have undermined it. But what I'm calling about is uh, why America matters and why it's significant from all of history. Because we declared ourselves sovereign individuals, and that flies in the face of what happened for centuries when the king was the sovereign or the duke or um, the um, magistrate or anybody who was a higher authority to you, you had to answer to them. You were bound to the ground. That's where you were, and you had to um, capitulate to the higher powers. And as citizens of America, we had the right to go and do as we please, according to the Bill of Rights. So that's why they had it out for us, because we challenged the status quo of um, the citizens being subjugated subjects by the crown. Yeah, the new authoritarians are now the new authority. The new monarchy is uh, basically the authoritarian state, the uh, the administrative state. We we don't even get a say in the administrative laws that they create. You know, our legislature doesn't influence that. Michael, did you have any answer to that? I just want to comment and say I think that's absolutely right. And if you think about maybe three things that I would call distinctives that were at the very highest level of importance in what made America unique and great. Number one this idea that we had inalienable rights given by God that therefore could not be taken away by any sovereign, any bureaucracy, any corporation, inalienable, they belong to you, one. Two, the rule of law, prince or pauper, the same rule applied to you, and importantly, it included the idea of private property. And number three, the separation of powers to prevent the kind of uh, aggregation of power in, in any one group. You mentioned the Supreme Court. You know, one of the things I talk about in the book when I talk about this crisis of institutions is that each of our three branches of government, separation of powers is a great thing, but now they're no longer doing their own jobs and trying to do other people's jobs. So our Congress is no longer legislating. The judiciary is having to step in to the void of that. And because neither of them can quite figure it out, then the executive branch feels like they have the right to use executive orders, unconstitutional power 
to do things because they can't get proper legislation anymore because Congress cannot uh, get out of its own way. Very good, Gary. Did you have any more comments before uh, before you go? Uh, I intend to find this book. I'm, I know where to get it, and I'm going to read it on the plane when I fly out to Tulsa. So you guys have a great time. Bye bye. Excellent. Why America Matters: The Case for a New Exceptionalism at WhyAmericaMatters.com. That's right. WhyAmericaMatters.com. Excellent. Yeah, I got the Kindle version myself because uh, so, it was faster to get. <laughs> That's basically why I didn't want to wait for the paper. So. Um, one of the things that uh, you mentioned here is that uh, you quote Charles Murray. Uh, Charles Murray argues that there are four foundational virtues that more than anything else shaped American exceptionalism, industriousness, honesty, religion, and marriage. And you mentioned that the first two are pure virtues and the last two are virtuous institutions supportive of public morality. Did you want to speak to that at all? Yeah, so let's talk about the institutions first. We've talked about religion, so I won't go back over it. But marriage in America was also pretty new and distinct. Why is that? Well, women actually had a say. Well, technically, uh, they still didn't have the right to vote for too long. Um, there was no forced marriage in America. There was no uh, chattel marriage. There was no selling you know, your daughter into a marriage. Because of this deep religious institution, uh, people entered into these covenants, these contracts, uh, you could call it that, but this covenant between man and woman. Um, willingly and with that commitment they took it very very seriously and of course you hear lots of watch hollywood movies or otherwise about things that went on behind the scenes or whatever but the reality is is that marriages were stable they lasted longer um, than in other parts of, of, of the world so i think that is the point that murray is getting to here is that this was a distinctive that didn't exist to the same degree in europe or, or elsewhere around the world on the uh, on, on the virtues it's absolutely right, you know, and, and of course, people all the way back to Tuckfield, Tuckfield and others talked about this industriousness, this idea that um, Americans just work harder than anywhere around the world. But again, you can't separate that from the other things we've talked about. People were willing to work longer, harder, because the benefit of their labor was accruing to them. They were no longer in a feudal yeah. system. They were no longer uh, slaves or chattel or otherwise, except of course for African-Americans until that was was addressed. But my point is that that wasn't the case in Europe. You, know, you uh, if you were indebted, you became a bondservant of somebody else. Here, you could work, you could clear land, you could create prosperity for yourself. That in itself was a virtuous circle industrious, this has led to prosperity, etc. The other one was honesty. And that's one where people tend to snicker at, but there's lots of evidence out, out there to say the first century or so of American history that people were remarkably honest. Dishonesty was was looked down on and there were consequences, there were punishments uh, for, for it in, in, in public, making public statements that were untrue, etc. That today we just sort of laugh at or mock at and say, oh, of course, you know, they're a politician, they're going to, they're going to lie. Murray's hitting on a point there that because, again, the underlying virtue of religion, believe it or not, people were more honest. Yeah, there's this, um, there's a lack of shame in our culture these days. There's, you know, it, it, oh, you can't be a Christian and shame somebody. You can't be judgmental. You can't um, call somebody to task for being dishonest because hey, we know that you know, you're not perfect. You're a liar too. You've you've told white lies or whatever. And so there there is no holding people accountable for the lack of virtue. And so 
where is the virtue in being virtuous if, if it has no value? And part of this came along with the rise of diversity and tolerance as the highest virtues in the land. Uh, because with the idea of diversity and tolerance, you could no longer correct someone or say, well, this isn't a good idea, you can't do this. And it stepped in, uh, crept into uh, Christian churches and Christian culture in this idea, using Jesus's often misunderstood phrase of do not judge lest you be judged. And they forget that he also said, judge with righteous judgment and to discern between good and evil. And of course, he was constantly confronting the religious and political powers, calling them to account, judging them, okay? Discern, it's saying what you're doing is wrong and here's, you know, here's why, and do, and do something else, repent, change. We've lost that largely in, in the culture of the church. And of course, the, the church also pulled into itself and stopped speaking into the broader culture, stopped speaking into politics, stopped speaking in entertainment in Hollywood. Uh, we abdicated a responsibility for a generation. Let's hope that that's changing and people are waking up in those realms as well. Yeah, uh, we've discussed before in this show, the concept of pietism. And there's like, oh, we're, we're, we're not gonna get down in the deep dirt, the, the the um, politics is a dirty business. We're not going to get involved. We're spiritual. We're going to stay on a spiritual plane. We'll pray for you. We, we're not going to vote. We're not going to get politically active. We're going to, you know, stay in our lane, so to speak. And so you had pastors who no longer, I mean, man, the American Revolution was led by pastors. You know, the Black Robe Brigade is what the British called them. And, uh, now pastors are afraid to call sin sin for fearing i don't know why somebody might walk out the door who he might otherwise i'll be charitable that he might otherwise reach another time but you know i don't like to call shame on somebody because they had a child born out of wedlock but at the same time i don't want to celebrate it it's no reason to celebrate that this it's a it's a minor tragedy so you, you know, know childbirth out of wedlock is is a a, a child that doesn't have a father a mom who's going to be pretty poor. It's it's. I mean, we want to support them in their life, but not in their lifestyle. Well, that sounds uncharitable, doesn't it? <laughs> and you see that this is what Jesus did. He confronted the power structures, the religious powers, the political powers, but he helped the broken. So the woman caught in adultery, his uh, approach to her was very different than with the Pharisees, than with Herod, than with others, where he you know, said, "You fox, you know, that's what you're doing." And, and that is, I think, the approach that you're describing is absolutely, you know, one of the things that happened in, in the 1990s was we gave up the, the, the fight. You know, there's this interesting book I read at the time called, you know, Why Gays as a Group Are Morally Superior to Christians as a Group. This was a Duke theolo uh, theologian. His point was making is the, the homosexual advocates are at least out on the streets fighting for their rights. Like the Christians are hiding away in their churches. And, and, and afraid to engage on this battle. This was at the time around the question of, of gay marriage in, in the 90s. And he was just basically saying like, guys, you you know, this, this war is already war. This, this conflict is already over because you refuse churches to engage. Now, and you mentioned earlier, Eric Metaxas is just the author of Bonhoeffer. He's written a very important book recently called Letter to the American Church, where he basically confronts the American church and says, you are doing exactly what the German church did in the 1930s. You're ignoring everything that's going on. You're afraid to confront the powers. You're afraid to confront the evil that's, go that's happening. And here's what will happen next. At some point, it will be too late. You will be silenced. 
you will be shut down. Uh, we're already seeing it in our neighbors and with our neighbors in Canada. It's coming here next, folks. And it's not too late, but we need, uh, you're, you're right, there needs to be a great awakening. It has to start with pastors and church leadership re-engaging and putting on their big boy pants and getting out there and doing something to confront these issues. You mentioned Canada and pastors, and there's my friend, Pastor Arthur Pulowski. You know, is a stunning example. He's been on the show a number of times, standing up to it. It's horrible what's going on. It's socialism. It's on our northern border, and it's 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 as bad as having Cuba 90 miles away. It's only 30 miles away from here where I sit. Now we've got a caller, uh, Joe from Wyandotte, on the phone, and I'm not going to do to him what uh, Pastor Rick did in, in the earlier show and just leave him 30 seconds to talk maybe before the music starts. So, Joe, what do you have to contribute to the conversation that won't take up the rest of the show? I just want to get his reaction to something on the governance aspect, that our exceptionalism was destroyed when our uh, separations and checks and balances were destroyed when the 17th Amendment basically erased the 10th Amendment and made the Senate a second people's house rather than a state's house. Yeah, you raise an interesting point, and you know the 10th Amendment, if, unless I'm misremembering this, the 10th Amendment basically said, I'm paraphrasing, that whatever is not explicitly provided to the federal government in the Constitution, those powers are reserved for the states. Yeah. Am I right on that, Joe? Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so that idea was, was essential, that basically the government was given certain, federal government was given certain authorities, raise armies, tax for that purpose, do other things. But everything else, if it wasn't explicitly addressed in the Constitution, these were rights that properly belonged to the states. Well, we saw this absolutely, this concept absolutely eviscerated in the 20th century. It really began in the 1930s with the New Deal, with all of the things that uh, President uh, FDR, Frank Roosevelt, uh, instituted in the creation of the administrative state. Even before that, you know, we had the Federal Reserve, the IRS, all of these institutions coming in, increasingly taking more power. And one of the things I argue at Why America Matters, which you can find at whyamericamatters.com, is that uh, states are going to have to try to begin to wrest some of that power back. For example, around energy policy. I mean, there are states that can uh, provide their own power, their own electricity, but federal regulations are keeping them from being able to do that. Uh, you've seen Texas and others start to think about, uh, rather than a, cent a central bank digital currency, uh, authorizing their own form of gold-backed payments, et cetera. Uh, there, there is a coming confrontation between the states and the federal government over these issues. Um, you know, we talked a bit about the divisiveness and the potential for civil, you know, division again. But um, I, I think this is probably the mo one of the most important challenges that we face going forward. Is states are going to have to begin to test again uh, their powers versus the federal government in a new and a robust way, more consistent with the Tenth Amendment. Yeah, unfortunately, it gets cast in the light of slavery and states' rights during the Civil War period. Unfortunately, and and that's that's sad that happens because you're absolutely right. Where the the states are the the laboratory of the republic. The uh, boy, the time has flown. Derek's telling me we got a minute left, and uh, that means thirty minutes till the uh, thirty seconds until the music starts. And I just want to tell you, folks, uh, my guest today has been Michael Wilskerson. He still is, and he's the author of Why America Matters: Case for New Exceptionalism. That's a phenomenal book. I'm not just saying that just because he's looking at me right now. 
I'm telling you, it's it's a very informative book, very uplifting, and give yourself some time to read it. Michael, any final words, like in uh, 15 seconds? Just to communicate that there's hope in this book. In other words, it's not just a problem. It's how do we find a way forward? And that's one of the tenets of this show. So thanks for joining us, folks. Come on back next week for more of Your American Heritage.